Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. So today we have a special treat. So we are going to have our co-host, Tessa, and her co-author, Matt Johnson, join us today and talk about the book that they wrote called Branding That Means Business. Branding means business. Branding that means business. (laughs) Sorry. Branding that means business. So let's start and dig in a little bit. And I want to start with you, Matt. So Matt, tell us a little bit about you. So your education, your background, and I understand you have a real interest in neuromarketing and branding. So tell us about you. Yeah. So for me, my uh, academic background is is really grounded in neuroscience. So uh, I spent my uh, mid-20s in uh, in labs and libraries. I went straight into uh, graduate school during the financial crisis. I thought it'd be a good idea to sort of hibernate and, and wait for the economy to hopefully turn things around. Uh, so my PhD focused on uh, the neuroscience and psychology of perception and communication. So essentially how we go into any given environment, we take sort of the raw sensory signals from that environment, we interpret these, we perceive these, we build these sort of rich inner world, and then ultimately we communicate these ideas and concepts in the social environment. So I was studying sort of the, uh, the neural basis of that. I did a lot of work with a technology called fMRI, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, allows us to eavesdrop on the brain that certain processes are happening. Uh, so that was essentially my, my academic training. Um, after I finished my PhD, I went into the, the business world. I, I basically wanted to do the exact opposite of being in labs and libraries, working on very, very specialized myopic topics. I really wanted to uh, to see this bigger world that had since recovered somewhat since the financial crisis. And I went into the world of, of business consulting. And it's really that experience that, uh, that really taught me this uh, really rich intersection between psychology, neuroscience, and business, uh, which I found to be especially profound in uh, the world of marketing, because uh, it sort of brought in elements of behavioral economics and sort of the science of decision making. It brought in a lot of the work that I was doing on perception and communication and how we respond in the consumer environments, both psychologically, but also what are the sort of the, the neural mechanisms that uh, support these types of processes. And so I ended up uh, going into some practitioner work. I, I have continued to do research in this area. I, I do some uh, consulting work. I've worked uh, up at Nike as a, as a resident and expert. Uh, doing work essentially in neuromarketing and, and giving a neuroscientific perspective to uh, elements of the innovation team and the marketing team there. Uh, I've worked with Porsche, Shopify, some other brands that are, are really trying to harness insights from neuroscience to sort of better understand their consumers. So that's essentially my my focus. Matt, you've got like the coolest job and background. We could totally geek out together. <laughs> and I wanted to ask... Uh... Uh, this one's for Tess. Tess, you and Matt, you, you ventured on writing this book on branding. Can you share with us uh, what was the angle 
Uh, and what interest did you two have in, in writing this book? Which, by the way, is good. I like it. Thank you for giving it to me. <laughs> Thanks for that, Michael. Um, so actually, it was interesting. I think the first time I met Matt was, um, I think the first time I met Matt in person was in Ashridge. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. But uh, it was at a faculty summit in Ashridge, which is in the UK, um, part of the Holt camp, one of the Holt campuses where they do executive education, their doc doctoral program. And, um, we were drinking wine and talking about empathy because I had recently been the hired CEO of a empathy training company. And Matt had done some really innovative work, um, with Dr. Bloom, I believe, around empathy. And it was really interesting because Dr. Bloom and, and the neuroscientists I worked with out of Mass General had quite differing views on, on empathy. So it was a little bit of a debate slash conversation um, that led into us starting to write an article together and then just continuing to explore as we uh, discuss these topics um, to, to want to start to, to dive into this world of branding. And, and we were presented with this opportunity to write a marketing book. And, um, when I went to Matt and said, you know, I think this might be an interesting opportunity to write something more kind of interesting around branding, because at the time we actually embarked on this was, gosh, was it 2019, 2020? It was right during the pandemic, the start of the pandemic. And, the world was quite different then, although brand activism and, and some of these, the ways in which companies were interacting with society and kind of the socio-political dynamics um, were really interesting. And so it was just an opportunity for us that ended up being a pandemic project uh, for us to get together and write this book. I think what was interesting about our the way we complemented each other with our backgrounds in education was was my work having um, done a lot of work in human capital strategies and, and really thinking about the operations side of the house and how do you actually operationalize marketing and brand um, and what's the impact on the employee workforce um, and some of the foundational principles of having been a marketing professor and teaching marketing to undergrads and MBA students for several years. And, and uh, Matt brought more of the the neuromarketing lens, uh, the neuroscience, this, you know, topics around social signaling and social identity and really kind of cool topics that helped us have a very progressive look at the way companies need to think about branding moving forward. So um, it's become a really, I think, interesting topic, uh, especially in the work I do now with Corn Ferry, because we have a lot of companies who are attracting really smart top talent um employees and and prospective candidates to their to their companies um because they have great brands but they're not keeping the, the employees <laughs> and what they're finding out is that the when the employee joins the great brand they realize it's not so great on the inside and it's not a great place to work and it's not a great culture and so now it's it's really interesting to reflect on this research we did around the book and to think about how companies can really operationalize what they they try to espouse through their brand to the consumer to operationalize that to their employee workforce to make it a better place to work. So um, that's kind of the evolution of how Matt and I came together on this book and, and the way the work is continuing. That's amazing. So what an impressive pandemic project. Because I think my pandemic project was watching HGTV. That's you know, not, not that great of an outcome. Um, so Matt, in the book, you discuss a comparison 
of the platform economy, especially um, Amazon, and you compare that to the KT extinction. So I'd really be interested in you explaining, you know, what you and Tessa meant by that in, in the book. So, yeah, that was uh, our analogy to really describe this uh, seismic shift, uh, which has happened in the world of business and the world of marketing uh, around essentially who any given brand, especially uh, direct-to-consumer, especially B2C brands can, can partner with. Um, everything now, because of how the Internet has uh, been shaped, uh, essentially goes through these major players. Um, and you can sort of you know, rewind the tape and really 2007 was a sort of watershed year. This is when uh, Amazon launches the Kindle. This is when iPhone launches the, or sorry, Apple <laughs> launches the uh, the iPhone. Uh, this is when Facebook expands uh, beyond uh, the college campus. Uh, this is when Twitter is founded. Uh, all of these big, healthy, digitally native brands become more than just big successful companies they really become the guardians of the internet and so you know if you want to do anything on the internet if you want to have a you know a small shop that sells things you have to get indexed by google you know google owns 97 percent of global search you have to have you know basic seo practices to get your your paid index so you can uh, be found on google um, you know, you have to advertise on Facebook and Instagram. You have to, if you're selling a, a you know, a physical product, you basically have to partner with Amazon. Um, and so all of the value that you're trying to deliver to consumers are happening, being mediated through these major, major platforms. And these platforms at the same time are also your competitors. Uh, so we saw what this did in the retail industry. So this is really where the, the analogy comes in. Uh, which is that, you know, Amazon came in and they provide value more directly, more immediately, um, and more robustly than really any individual retailer can. And they absolutely just demolished physical retail and, and no more clearly and, and no more sort of spot on than physical bookstores. And so physical bookstores, I mean, we can look back at some of the statistics we cite in the book, but something like 80% of physical bookstores went out of business between 2006 and 2010. Um, so that in itself is sort of a tragic story. That's sort of like the asteroid hitting. But what was really interesting about sort of looking at a little bit of a broader lens at that and looking at what happened 2010 on is that there's sort of this, this regrowth. And the bookstores that have survived and have thrived since that period are pretty amazing. Um, if you want a book, if you just want a book, you want sort of the raw utility of a book, you want to read a book, you go on Amazon. You can get it on, you know, a digital format on Kindle, or you get, you know, the physical copy, you know, sent to you as quickly and as efficiently as possible. If you're competing on just product value alone, Amazon is going to beat you nine times out of ten. Um, and so the physical book tours that, that really survived and thrived these are the ones that delivered much more than just a book. They delivered this incredible ethos, this sort of incredible customer service, this incredible brand experience that really only a, a physical bookstore can. Um, so we talked about this case. Uh, I'll actually butcher the Japanese. I won't try and cite it, but there's this fantastic uh, bookstore in Tokyo. Um, it's along the lines of, of Morioko Shoten. Um, which if we have any Japanese listeners, I'm sorry for butchering the name, but just so you can try and, and Google it and find it. But they have dedicated themselves to one single book at a time. So the entire bookstore at any given time just sells one book and the entire physical space 
becomes oriented around that one book. And that's the kind of thing that Amazon just can't touch. Um, so they're running in a completely different lane. And so going back to the KT Sinkson analogy, you know, the asteroid killed the dinosaurs, killed all the, the cold-blooded creatures, but what survived and thrived were the warm-blooded mammals. And ultimately that gave rise to, uh, to, to Homo sapiens, human beings, to, to upright bipedal organisms that we became, we came to sort of proliferate all around the globe. And so that was sort of our analogy to describe this transformation that's really needed in the world of business to not compete so much on, on product and value and infrastructure. That's Amazon's game. That's Alibaba. That's, you know, just raw, you know, infrastructure and really dedicate themselves more to developing the brand. And the, the book goes on to, to sort of illustrate the roadmap for doing that. It's so interesting. I got, I go to uh, Tokyo about twice a year, so I'm going to go to that bookstore. That sounds really, really interesting. Uh, so this was for Tess. Uh, so Tess, with your 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 work at Corn Ferry, uh, how does it intersect with your interest in branding and marketing, and and how have the two been connected for you during the past year while working at Corn Ferry? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question um, because it doesn't seem like a logical line <laughs> to a lot of people. But I, I think, again, what we're realizing more and more because the walls of, um, and we speak about this in the book, the walls of information asymmetry have crumbled between the consumer and between the operations and, and internal company, the operations or internal workings of a company. And as a result, the company has to be much more transparent with how they operate, who are their, who's in their value chain, who are they doing business with, how do they treat their employees, and that has a direct impact on the way their brand is perceived uh, by the consumers. So not to pick on Amazon, but I, I recently spoke with a group of marketing students, and I, I did the thing that we mentioned in the book, which is I had them uh, Google Relentless.com. And if you Google Relentless.com, you'll see that you come to actually the Amazon site. And the fact that that probably was where Jeff Bezos was going originally with uh, with the company. But um, what I also talked about with these students was I, I shared during the pandemic, Amazon came out with an ad that had nothing to do with what they do, their products or services, the benefit to the consumer, how quick and fast their delivery it was. It was all about how they treat their employees. And it was a big thank you to the employees for being there during the pandemic. And if you reflect on what might have been happening in 2020 with Amazon, we had a lot of stories about the fact that, you know, the health of their employees were, were at risk, that the conditions, the working conditions were still not so great. And so, you know, this became problematic for Amazon and therefore they had to First of all, have messaging around the fact that we we are grateful for our employees, we treat them well, and then they have to start changing their practices internally to to help again operationalize against um, against what they were espousing with their brand and and the fact that they they appreciate their employees and so forth. Um, I think it's I think we're now entering into a really super interesting time. I've been kind of dying to talk to Matt about this because. <laughs> You know, you you we saw this brand activism uh, that really emerged over the past five to six years, where especially with uh, the unfortunate death of George Floyd, and we saw these companies that were starting to come out and really take stands um, around social and political issues, uh, such as Black Lives Matter and the hashtag Me Too effort. And you know what we have since seen is kind of. 
I think the pendulum swinging back a bit where companies who are coming out, such as Bud Light um, and Target, um, you know, with brand ambassadors that might represent certain communities like the LGBTQ plus community. And then with a little bit of pressure, there, there's the pendulum swinging back. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this evolves over time. We talk a lot about in the book that it's not necessarily what are the values that you have as a company. It's more important that they're authentic and genuine to the way the company operates and that you are steadfast in what you believe in, whether it is, you know, very pro LGBT, LGBTQ plus, uh, inclusive type culture or whether you have a culture like Chick-fil-A that's more focused on Christianity and other types of influences. And that's the way you want to operate and run your business. Either way, as long as you're consistent in your messaging and you're consistent in the way that you develop that culture for your internal employee organization, you'll probably be okay as a brand um, based on these values. So it's going to be super interesting to see what happens with Bud Light, what happens with Target, and these companies that are just flip-flopping back and forth. It's, it's a little bit like, what do you stand for? And I think as an, as employees as part of this organization, especially if you belong to one of these communities, it's, you know, it definitely is going to not just be an issue from the consumer side, but eventually I would imagine it's already an issue with employee groups that are are feeling a little bit abandoned by the brand or um, really wondering, you know, what is the level of support that this company has for who I am, what my benefits are, and um, how how I'll be supported in my work moving forward. So it's been um, it's a it continues to be a really interesting time, and that's a lot of the work that we do at Corn Ferry is just helping to make that connection between the marketing function and the talent management function, the employee organization, and how are you operationalizing all that you're doing in marketing and with brand through your people. That's so good. Well said, Tess. I mean, this, that consistency and the steadfastness, you know, it, it is amazing. Just a little bit of pressure. And then, oh, yeah, we, we're forgetting that, forgetting about what we said we stand for. Yeah. It's, it's really sad to see all these examples right now. So, Matt, for small to medium sized businesses, what are some of the key findings from your book um, that you would say would really help an entrepreneur or somebody who runs this, some of these smaller companies? to build their brand. So I think one of the, the biggest things, going back to what we were speaking about earlier with Amazon and, and sort of playing in a different lane and not trying to deliver just sheer efficiency and infrastructure, but but doing something else, I think really small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses are actually really well-placed to be able to do that. Um, this actually goes back to the original uh, over wine conversation that Tessa and I had in Ashridge uh, all those years ago which is this idea of, of empathy. And there is a lot of, of research on this idea that empathy, as, as fantastic as a human emotion uh, as it is, uh, just doesn't scale. So you're able to understand and empathize and, and feel and have that emotional contagion of what one person feels and thinks relatively easily. You can sort of mentalize, you can engage your, your social cognition to model another person's conscious experience but if you try to do that with two people, with three people, four people, you know, 20, 30,000 people becomes much more difficult. And there's a lot of uh, sort of deleterious consequences of this. There's this great researcher at the University of Oregon, Paul Slovich, who does uh, some really striking experiments showing just how 
Uh, this is employed with donations. So, for example, ask people, all right, how much do you want to donate to this one child? And you'll get sort of like a $20 average donation. They'll put two children there and the amount goes down. Three children down, down, down. So as the, as the scale of the problem grows, uh, the amount that we're willing to donate and our degree of empathy actually goes down with it, which is the exact opposite of what we would want uh, towards a, a compassionate and, and generous response to an unmet need. So long story long, um, empathy doesn't scale very well. And so, uh, you know, Amazon, Walmart, massive brands like that, that's sort of a massive uh, constituency, they have to develop a brand personality that is encompassing and can resonate with wide swath of, of consumers and all these different target markets. Um, and you end up sort of diluting yourself in the process. So what does Amazon stand for except for sort of efficiency and, and sort of consumer trust? doesn't really have a distinct brand personality. Um, and so this is where small and medium-sized businesses come in, which they serve a smaller target demographic, um, which is usually a bit more specialized and a bit more unique. You're able to develop a brand personality, which is uh, much more resonant directly with a, a smaller group of people. And you have the really the high touch needed to, to express that empathy, where as the CEO or as a, an executive member of a small business, you can get to know like directly individual consumers and they can feel a direct empathetic connection with your business and with your brand due to this, due to this high touch. Um, so as a, a brand, a small brand becomes a medium sized brand, becomes a, a large brand, it goes through the same challenges of trying to scale this. But while they're at that uh, sort of smaller stage, I think they do have a distinct advantage in terms of, of building the stronger empathetic connection with their consumers. I think that's great to use empathy as a unique value proposition because uh, you're, yeah, the big competitors, they just can't do that. I, I think that's a great point. Uh, so as we wrap up, uh, this is for both of you, for, for Matt and Tessa. So uh, how about Tessa, you start and then, then Matt, you go after. Uh, what are some of your favorite aspects of the book that you are hoping that others will appreciate when they read it? Yeah, that's a, gosh, that's a great question. Um, there, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, the KT, the example of the KT extinction. I think Matt uh, was the master of metaphors um, when writing the book. And so, uh, many of the metaphors um, that are in the book are, are really thanks to Matt um, and being able to make um, learning about branding strategy super interesting and accessible to really anyone, not just folks in marketing, but anyone who is running a business and or is interested in the topic. Or even if you think about as consumers, the way brands affect our lives every single day, you know, our own kind of allegiance and loyalty to certain brands. If you've ever wondered why that is, or how does that work, or how is the company perhaps even manipulating me a little bit so that I can uh, have that loyalty to the brand, the book really does touch upon that. So I do think it's very broadly accessible. But um, the other kind of pieces is that we were really thoughtful to think about how do you build brand strategy, the kind of foundational principles, which is really the first three chapters, then are what are some of the issues that are really facing companies today? And how do you navigate those waters? Like, do I make take a stand on a social political issue? Um, how do I assess whether or not that's the right thing for my company to do right now? Um, being able to think about the, you know, the changing 
economy. And now that we're facing this whole new disruption with AI, which is pretty much every conversation that I'm having these days at work and with clients, it really, it, it's, it remains relevant, which is how do you maintain and have a consistent brand with these disruptions? Like what needs to be true about the experience that consumers are having with your company, with your products, with your services, with the employees that are facing them every single day? What are the, what's that purpose? What are those uh, values and principles that you want your company to, to stand by so that Regardless of business model shifting or um, new technology being introduced in order to deliver your product or service or to maybe even change the function of your product or service, the the feeling that the consumer is going to get, the, the reliance that they have, the belief they have, the meaning that they derive from your brand is all going to remain the same. And it, it really is more about taking a step back and thinking about those those questions of of how do I connect with my consumers on meeting and how can I be meaningful to them? I think we do a pretty good job on that and then explore some really kind of cool topics, um, which I know is um, perhaps Matt's going to bring up, but certainly as it relates to luxury brands and social identity, just some really cool topics that are interesting to read about. So for me, God, I don't know if you said what's the one aspect of the, of the book, but <laughs> For me, I just think the whole book is great. No, but I, I do think, um, especially as we go into this emergence of AI, I do think the book is incredibly relevant to still think about what is what is needed for our brand today. Great. Matt, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think just to, to dovetail on that, I think one of the, the central messages of the book, which we bring up in, in the, the introduction to the book, this idea of uh, really trying to, to tether the brand to the fundamentals of, of human nature that, uh, you know, socioeconomic situations are going to change, geopolitical situations are going to change. Technology is, is a constantly evolving dynamic force in society. Um, instead of asking what's going to change and trying to predict it exactly right, um, asking instead, well, what's not going to change? And especially if you're operating in a B2C environment, human beings are going to be your, your core customer. And the fundamentals of, of human beings, that's really the focus of the brand. But of course, us human beings were these odd, quirky, you know, multifaceted, complex beings. You know, we don't really admit to any sort of straightforward categorization. But nonetheless, there is a, a science of human nature and there is an ability to, to have a focus within one's approach to branding, which attempts to, to tether its core attributes to these human fundamentals. Um, and I think this is a, a very evergreen idea. And I think we're, we're seeing some of the, the true test of it, as Tessa mentioned, with the rise of generative AI technologies. Um, we've all seen, you know, the, the images that uh, Dolly or Mitch or me can just so easily conjure up. Um, and what's really interesting to me uh, in, in seeing this emergence is, you know, seeing what people find really interesting about this imagery and, you know, this technology can combine and synthesize and create uh, and, and combine all these ideas and concepts in really interesting sort of seamless, realistic, high fidelity ways. Um, but what it's doing really is it's taking things that we already appreciate, that we already know about, that we already have a, a schema for and then combining it in, in really interesting ways that we've never really thought of before. So that classic image, for example, of like the Pope, uh, which is walking with the uh, the big puffy Balenciaga jacket, right? So AI is going to be able to, uh, you know, combine 
hope and, you know, hype beast culture. Um, but what AI isn't doing is creating the meaning that we have associated with hope and the meaning that we have associated with, uh, let's say hype beast culture and Balenciaga. And, you know, especially for the latter, you know, that, that ability to cultivate meaning and, and sort of a, a node within the culture and the node within the zeitgeist, that is exclusively the ability of, of the brand to do. And to me, it seems like a very safe bastion, uh, for the brand to focus on, especially in this, uh, in this, this era of, of generative AI when there is so much disruption and there is so much ability to, to send performance marketing to another level. Um, it's really about the brand's ability to cultivate meaning, which I think is, is going to be, uh, you know, sort of the true test moving forward. Wow. Just all the things that you're describing here, they're so interesting. So just a great job with the book, Branding That Means Business. <laughs> Say it correctly this time. So if anybody who's listening, if they wanted to buy the book, where would they go? So I know we've, we've, uh, we've sent, uh, a few, uh, we've, we've sent some opprobrium towards Amazon. So I'll send some traffic to Amazon as well. But <laughs> Amazon is probably the easiest place. Of course. Um, there's also bookshop.org. There's also Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can also go to our, if you're based in the U.S., our, our publisher is Public Affairs and, and they would appreciate if you went on their website. Our, if we have any UK listeners or listeners from abroad who wants the English version, then our, our uh, publisher is The Economist and Profile Books and it can be found there as well. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.